I'm just bored of this narrative. It's the same narrative of if I start a business, people think I'm a show off. If I write a book, people think I'm in love with myself. It's all just a narrative of you're too much, you're too loud, you're too quiet, you're too fat, you're too thin, you're too political, you're not political enough. The truth is that you cannot get away from the reality that some people will choose not to like you and some people will not like what you say. Welcome to Bossing It, a found and flourish podcast where we explore real life stories of women on a mission to build big brands and fulfilled lives. Each guest will share the ups and downs of growing their business and get real about the challenges life has thrown their way on the road to success. Every episode will be a new adventure, discovering a fresh outlook on life and business and a bunch of tips to help you on your own mission of entrepreneurship. I am your host, Lara Sheldrake, founder of Found and Flourish, and this week's guest is Lauren Curry, OBE. She is the founder of Upfront, who is on a mission to change confidence and support 1 million women by 2023. Lauren is a trustee of the Design Council and Pregnant Then Screwed. In 2017, Lauren was awarded an OBE for her services to design and diversity. As someone who runs a community for women, I see confidence, or lack thereof, coming up often as a reason why women don't follow through on incredible ideas and well thought out plans. I also see oppression within our system every day and so wanted to find out from Lauren how she has learned to challenge the way we live and function within a society that is not built to support women. In this episode, we cover design and its part in entrepreneurship and innovation, systemic oppression and how the system is broken, how we can use our position of privilege to create positive change, why getting it wrong is inevitable, activism in business, we also explore the concept of rest and capitalism, and finally Lauren shares her tips for those who need a boost in confidence to turn their dreams into a reality. I hope you enjoy listening to this episode as much as I enjoyed recording it. Lauren, welcome to the Bossing It podcast. Thank you so much for being here today. How's it all going? Hi, Lara. It's great to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm so happy we finally have time to like have a good proper conversation that's not an Instagram DMs. Yes, me too. It's been a long time coming and um, I think I must have come across you about two years ago now. So it was quite a while ago. And the first time I, I saw a video of you and you were talking about something to do with politics and I was watching it and I was thinking oh my gosh she's saying everything that I want to be able to say <laughs> but don't have the confidence to say mm. and ever since then I've been following your really inspiring journey so it's such an honor to have you here today and I'm Aww. really excited to get stuck in and I guess the first question I have for anyone who isn't familiar with you mm. is if you could share a bit more about yourself and, and how you got to where you are today. Sure so uh, where to begin so I grew up in a small town in Scotland called Kilmarnock, it's like 50,000 people, one of the poorest towns in Scotland and had a really lovely, you know, really lovely family life. Um, so I have a mum who's very creative and very entrepreneurial. She always had like what we now know to be side hustles on the side of her, her day job. Uh, my dad works for a local government agency, but is an amazing pianist. So he used to, you know, come home at his lunch break and play Mozart. Was in a wedding band for most of my childhood growing up. So a very musical family. Um, and I have a younger brother who's four years older than me, who is one of my most favourite people in the world. Can make me laugh like nobody else can. So I have, you know, come from an amazing family who were very supportive you know I was the first person in my family to go to university I went to art school to study design so I was very lucky that really early on in my kind of secondary school journey I discovered design like I owe all this to my art teacher John Grant who I'm still in touch with to this day and I remember really clearly the day that he showed me a TV remote control that somebody had redesigned to make it easier to use for people with arthritis. And my mind was just completely blown to think, okay, so every single thing that we use in every moment of our day 
has been imagined and created by somebody. And from that moment on, you know, I was very academic and a geek in that way, you know, classic young girl hungry to get straight A's and be good. Um, but I was also very creative and, and, and artistic. And I think for me, design was the perfect combination of the two. So I went off to art school thinking I would be the next Steve Jobs. I was going to design a product. It would make me really rich and change the world. And then I discovered service design, which is a design practice that, you know, takes all the same methodologies you would use to design a chair or a lampshade, but applies it to services and systems. And that was my first business. So I built my first business in 2008, which was a service design consultancy. And I've been building businesses to tackle problems that really matter to me ever since. And I think, you know, a big a big part of my journey has been privilege, you know, my, my whiteness, my extroversion, uh, being, you know, pretty in inverted commas and slim, you know, all of these things make me palatable. Um, and another part of it has been audacity, I think, and hopefulness and ambition. And, you know, I'm still very much on a journey. There's no finish line, right? We just... This uh, ebbs and flows. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I wonder if you can talk a little bit more, if we're fast forwarding to today, what's what's your mission with everything? And that's a big question I know, but I know that you are on a mission and you're doing some incredible things. So I wonder if you can talk to us a little bit more about that. So I think there has been a very constant red thread of design, you know, as my practice and it is my craft and my discipline and the first you know I ran my first business for eight years then I spent a year in design education and then my next business was applying design to organizational context so looking at leadership and culture and ways of working and then there was a shift that was about moving away from The business being the business of design, if you like. So whether that would be educating, upskilling, or an organization hiring my business for design skills, I now use design as my process and my practice to inform the ventures that I'm building. So my current focus is my business upfront. I founded it in 2016. And since then, it's been something that's kind of sat alongside my, what was my focus at the time. And I'm in week three, I think, of being full-time founder at upfront, which feels like a big deal because it's the first time I've ever worked just on one thing since 2016. I have I am fully in, which you know I did have a bit of a wobble. My close friends listening will uh, testify. But I'm out the other side of it now, and I'm feeling I'm feeling hugely excited and optimistic, and like healthy level of of scared. And the mission that I'm on, that we're on up front, is to change confidence, and what we mean by that is we want to change confidence not women and we do that by showing women the power that they already have so my mission is to help women see and use the power that they already have and the kind of vehicle or lens that I'm focusing on to do that is confidence in the broadest sense of you know, you mentioned it in our introduction, whether that's confidence to have conversations that you might normally shy away from, whether that's confidence to stand on a stage, confidence to leave a relationship and everything in between. And what kind of falls under that is, you know, this notion of being visible, public speaking and really being an advocate for yourself and for others. And, you know, the the thing that really differentiates how we do that and the place we're coming from is that our emphasis is on the system that is broken as opposed to the emphasis on the individual woman 
that it's now down to her to, you know, to fix all these problems that she has in her life. I think that that switch up of, of narrative is fascinating and so powerful in itself, isn't it? Mm. Because you're not empowering women. They don't need empowering. As you say, they already have the power and it's changing, um, yeah, the way they, I guess, access that confidence that they already have somewhere. So the way that I always think, and you know, don't get me wrong, I am also, I see this stuff as like a lifelong journey, like especially as I'm, you know, really only just at the start of my journey with anti-racism and understanding and dissecting my own white privilege and what that means for the mission that we're on and the kind of model that I've chose to build that mission. But some of, you know, confidence is such a, it's such a good example of that narrative switch that you're talking about because rather than saying, you know, we women don't leave jobs because of low confidence. Women leave jobs because of sexism and racism and ageism and not being paid what they're worth. But instead, the dominating narrative is, like, where these wear this shade of lipstick and listen to this playlist on your way to work and you will be able to show up in a more confident way and it's nuanced it's complex I am learning so much every day but I I am so I I believe so deeply that we can we can change that narrative and that collectively we you know we have the power you know, to come back to the mission, we have the power to change that narrative for ourselves and for the next generation. I have so many questions about um, upfront and everything that you've just said. I'm going to try and put it in some kind of like concise um, <laughs> questions. So you talk about the system being broken and how it's not about empowering women with confidence, but arming them with the tools and the knowledge mm-hmm. to break down the system, um, apply themselves in a way where they can be their true selves and show up fully themselves, mm-hmm. despite the system working against us. So could we talk a little bit more about how the system's broken? Of course. How long have you got? <laughs> so, Well, maybe how that impacts women and, and how you've brought the upfront bond into this approach. So I think... There's decades upon decades of academic research and fantastic authors and thinkers who have been, you know, doing PhDs in this stuff for a very long time. It's really complicated, you know, gender equality and systemic oppression is complicated, right? So, you know, and again, to remind your gorgeous listeners that, you know, I'm I don't claim to have the answers, but I think I think it's about really accepting and facing the truth that there's no such thing as neutrality. You're either reinforcing the existing system or you are trying, working hard to create new ones. And, you know, that in itself is quite revolutionary and quite a radical idea for a lot of women that come through the bonds. The second piece is about understanding that low confidence, self-doubt, fear of putting yourself out there, all of these things that, you know, we're all very familiar with are a consequence of existing in a world that wasn't built with you in mind. So, and and again, it's flipping it so that we realise the onus is not on the individual to fix herself. The onus is on the system to change. So we create environments. And that environment might be a playground, a dinner table, a boardroom, you know, a local cafe, where all there's a much more diverse, richer range of behaviours, perspectives, different forms and versions of confidence are celebrated and recognised. And again, for a lot of women who come through the bonds, 
the notion that they have been oppressed for some of them that's often the first time they have realized that in their life which is in, is really quite profound and of course what comes with that can be a lot of shame fear guilt anger and I always come back to that quote of like the truth will piss you off and then it'll set you free <laughs> because I I think it's really relevant on, on this journey and then the third piece which is the biggest one for me is the truth that women as a group you know we are no more equal than men and women are you know there is and there's so much work to be done particularly by white women who are proud to call themselves feminists and building teams and asking for raises and doing all the things that the Instagram posts are telling us to do. It's really important that that conversation is rooted in one of how do we become genuine advocates? How do we become genuinely anti-racist? How do we do all this work in a way that's building ladders around ourselves? So the, the kind of seed of upfront started in 2016 as it was never meant to be a business it was it was a kind of guerrilla campaign if you like to make conference stages more diverse and my because I was so fucking bored of seeing the same white middle-aged privately educated men tell the same stories at design conferences and then realized that every other industry and sector was the same so long story short had this was like what if we have keynote speakers they have a big red sofa on stage with them. People with stage fright can sit on the sofa, chill out, acclimatise. Sounds amazing. Well, it was amazing. And, you know, we had over 500 people sit on the sofa all over the world. Oh, wow. And we had data that showed, you know, you're 30% more likely to speak at an event yourself one day. It was really impactful for the speaker, for the audience, for the conference organiser. But then, you know, the folks on the couch would be like, so what happens now? You know, okay, Lauren, you've got, like, you got me excited. Do you have a book or a podcast or something? I'm like, no, I don't have any of those things. And that was why, you know, slowly, it over time, it became a business because when I looked up and out into the world, most of the products that exist around supporting people with this stuff are not built with intersectionality in women in mind you know what they do you know Gary V Tony Robbins we've all seen these talks of the it's about being loud and muscly and domineering and it's just not fit for purpose anymore it's just out of date bullshit and I think there's such an opportunity for a new conversation about confidence and that's what we're building up front so what was what did the process look like then from the red couch to the bond? It's a funny thing because if I tell you the story now, it actually sounds like very neat. And like there was one prototype and then there was another prototype. And but at the time, like I I am very impatient and my designerly my design training has instilled such a strong bias towards action and hands up it's it, it's not always the right thing but in the majority of the time it serves me very well so this kind of impatience to figure this out help in some way and also let's just do something let's try something so the first phase was the couch and that came to be because of a horrendous experience I had at a conference in Bristol being the only woman on the programme and then being pretty much humiliated by the conference organiser in front of the audience. I mean, it's one of those that I replay and fantasise about what I would say if it oh, happened now. I but bet. it was, you know, it was so long ago. What and happened? I'm, I mean, it, it's so... <laughs> what happened? So the short version, I decided to call it out in my talk and say... Why are there no women speakers here today? And I am embarrassed by how naive I was. I didn't understand intersectionality. I didn't really understand privilege. I didn't understand 
how what a force you know race gender economic background all of these things play and who has access to these spaces or not but I'm proud that I said something in the moment and I think there was lots of people in the conference organization team that day who empathized with me and could see that they'd made a mistake and I then put a post-it note in the toilets that said would you like to be on stage one day and I had another post-it note that said you know tell me why tell me why you'd never talk on stage and I had a queue of people waiting to speak to me afterwards my twitter was on fire and I had just so many conversations with people and that was when I started to realise how complex it is and how differently it plays up for people of different genders. But at the end of the event, the conference organiser, the host, the man who owned the organisation, who put on the conference, stood up at the end to kind of say a few closing words and decided to kind of address the elephant in the room and kind of mentioned what I'd said in my speech. And whilst he was doing this, he he called me down, and this was quite a big, quite a big auditorium type of space, and I was sitting away up the back with my friend Amy, and he beckoned to me to come and join him on the stage. I thought so I could continue what I had started. You know, maybe we have a conversation like, okay, what does this mean? And mm. so I ran down the stairs. <laughs> you know, which even that is fairly awkward on the awkward scale and got to the front and he didn't let me talk so he just talked and I just stood there next to him silently oh and it was such so you a were standing there while he was talking about it yeah just... so what, what... it was oh, just awful. awful I'm so sorry that's horrendous no but I I think it was a it was a gift in many ways because I was pissed off and there was hundreds of people witnessed it. They were also pissed off. And now I had all these people talking to me about this problem that I was really, really curious, like helped me understand. And that was the first step in the journey that, you know, I'll be on forever now of understanding what true advocacy is, what true diversity is, how we create public spaces that are genuinely inclusive and how we build, you know, because... Even the idea of having a stage in an audience is not the most progressive. But I think, you know, it's not going anywhere fast. We're going to have that format for a long time. So how do we start to think about how we design those spaces so that they are welcoming to people who don't fit the white, extroverted, I can shout the loudest version of a story? Um so the couch was the first phase, and this happened on the side of my other ventures. I hired a couple of brilliant kind of women into intern type roles where they, you know, they got paid an hourly rate to just find people to sit on the couch, liaise with the conference organizers, collect data before and after. You know, nobody got paid. I was I was doing it because it was it was having such a transformative effect on some of the people who sat on the couch. And then as I was having the conversations, like I said earlier, they were asking me for more and there was clearly such a a want there. So I decided to, I convinced my employer at the time to let me run workshops in our office wow. in South London. Amazing. And I made an event, right, 30 quid a ticket. And every I did it every Saturday for a few months. Of course, this was before I had a baby. And, you know, every single one would sell out. I I left each one just floating on cloud nine. I got so much joy and just wonder, wonderful goodness out of the relationships I was forming, the conversations I was having with the women who showed up. So that was, you know, and again, it's my designer process of prototype, get feedback, iterate, Mm. test you know it's that constant model of test and learn then I started to kind of not very actively but just if it kind of came up in conversation would let businesses know like I run this workshop so then I did a few for businesses and then over time it it grew and grew into you know a, a, a proper offer 
with you know the, a proper price point attached to it and I always had ambitions to build an online version primarily because I'm very sensitive to things that are London centric because of of course I'm not from London and I think a lot of things often are and it's just very exclusion excluding um and it took me three years to build an online version of the workshop because I got pregnant, then I had a baby, all the while building other ventures, then there was a pandemic. Like, I just could not get this fucking course out the door. And, like, Chris, my partner, will tell you, you know, I'm, I I don't, I'm misses a thousand ideas a day and we used to have a thing in our house where I'd be like super excited to tell him something and he'd be like do your course like it became the <laughs> mantra of like would you just get this course finished amazing that's um, what you need isn't it exactly and I think part of it you know some of it was contextual but some of it was also I think my fear mm. I think I was scared which you know I'm sharing that because what what a beautiful story that the thing I was scared to own and launch into the world is now the work that I'm most proud of and is the work that's having the biggest impact on people. Um, And it just so happened that the launch of that coincided with the world shifting to, you know, forced to work from home because of a global pandemic. So the first online version launched last summer in August and it's much more than a workshop. It's a six-week programme. And each cohort is called a bond, as you said. So bond is the collective noun for a group of women. Love which that. I just love because I didn't even know that was a word like six months yeah, ago. Amazing. And now I just think it's beautiful. So we've had three bonds and we've 489 women from 25 different countries. Phenomenal feedback. It's always, it is and always will be free for women who are on no income or on maternity wow. leave. We're also building up more partnerships with businesses who put cohorts of their people through the bonds. Incredible. And the impact and the impact I've seen from people sharing testimonials and stories online, Mm. genuinely life changing for some, right? For most. Mm. God, it must be such a journey that these women go on. I wonder if you could give an example of any of the challenges that women come up against during the bond because there must be these moments where they suddenly realize how broken the system is or actually how much work is involved in understanding our privilege acknowledging it using it to to be part of positive change and I think that realization in itself is quite overwhelming isn't it to think actually there is a huge responsibility here and I wonder if, um, yeah, you can give any examples of that or maybe how they've overcome it within the bond. Yeah, so I, you know, I think part of the the power of the bond is that alongside these often quite intense, deep realisations, you have a huge amount of optimism, bias towards action, high energy, cheerleading, celebrating. And I think that combination feels special and and it's and it's that combination that keeps that keeps it in a place of progress and momentum rather than oh well, you know, what's the point? We're all fucked. You know, because I think like, you know, we've all had because you know, there's it's easy to go there. It's easy to let yourself spiral there and I think my that's why when you know when you ask me about my mission I always come back to this notion of of power because I really do believe that and you know there's people far more clever than I who have talked about this really eloquently on the power of collective action and the power of multiple voices I think there's so many moments throughout history where we see the power of what happens like the scale of change that can be created where women come together as a collective with intention you know pregnant and screwed 
which I know you're a big fan of their work as well. They are a, they're such a brilliant example of the level of change, you know, policy change that can be achieved when we, quite frankly, put our own egos aside, stop caring so much, what if, what will somebody think? Because at the end of the day, this kind of paralysis of what will they say, what will they think, what if I get it wrong, what if I say the wrong words, you know, I say this with love and kindness, but that in itself is privilege. You know, there's a lot of women who don't have a choice because this is their day-to-day, and it has been for the generations of women before them and their family. It's their every day, and they don't have the luxury of, you know, should I speak out in this team meeting about this political event today, or maybe I won't, because they know that if they show up with the wrong expression on their face, they might get fired because of the colour of their skin, you know? So I think it's... I think that that kind of focus on you are good enough exactly as you are, we have to focus on the power that we have and reminding ourselves that anything other than that, the kind of what's the point, what if it doesn't work who's listening, who cares, like all of those narratives keep the status quo firmly in place. Like this is what the people in power, and yes, predominantly, certainly in the UK, predominantly white, middle-aged, privately educated, often incompetent men who are in traditional positions of power, us thinking that, you know, well, we don't we don't quite know enough yet to speak up or have the conversation. It's what keeps them where they are. And I think we also forget that, you know, we're we are we're leaping ahead like ten times over and imagining ourselves, you know, I don't know, protesting or starting a political party or, you know, something that feels big, where actually the majority of work we need to do is in our own homes. You know, it's around our own dinner tables. It's with our girl, with our girlfriends, with the parents we chat to at the school gates, like challenging our teachers on the fact that there's no brown faces in the book that your kid's been sent home with, you know, or whatever it might look like. Um, and often those things actually feel higher stakes than some of the other stuff that feels more public facing. And of course that's very valid because the stakes are higher. The the sacrifice is potentially much bigger. And I read some something recently, and of course I can't remember to credit who or where from, but it was this idea of genuinely being an advocate like as a white person being a genuine advocate should cost you something you know it if there is a sacrifice that's causing you pain that's a sign that you're going in the right direction you know a really good example of that could be you get offered say you and I get offered to go do a keynote for an organisation that has just publicly displayed racism and they want to pay us $25,000 for that keynote. And we say, well, no. And this is why. Like, that's a sacrifice. We've lost, we've lost that paycheck. Right, you know, and there's so many examples where you choose to work. It's like, of course, I could go work for this tech startup and get a bigger check, even though I know the founder's a white supremacist. Or am I going to go work somewhere else, you know? Yeah, yeah, it's that moral compass, isn't yeah. it? It's like ta- it's tapping it, tuning into it and understanding what your morals are. And, yeah, you've led me... Um, on to the next question that I had. And I know that you've touched on intersectionality, anti-racism work, white privilege. And 
I'm always asking myself, and I know many others who feel they are in privileged positions, how we can be better advocates and to use our privilege for good. And I know you've touched on Mm -hmm. that, but do you have any actionable advice for those who are in that position and, and want to do more? And I guess you know, you, you alluded to it earlier when you were saying um, by having a place or, you know, a seat at the table, we are in a position to invite others who may not have been invited and actually providing spaces mm-hmm. where we can amplify those who may be overlooked. Mm-hmm. Is there any other advice you'd be able to share for those who want to do more? Yeah, and, you know, it would be a remiss of me not to start my response by saying there are so many incredible black and brown women who give this advice for their job yes you know, they are diversity and inclusion consultants and experts i am not one of those you know this is not my field of expertise i am but you are on this mission a, aren't you yeah you, yeah so you're walking I'm the a walk white woman try trying to yeah learn in the open yeah. i very much do not have all the answers um But I think my advice to people who feel kind of stuck in this, you know, the stories that I hear, they swing between a bit like what you just described. I recognise that I have privilege, whether that's time, whiteness, education, finance, you know, there's lots of different versions of what that privilege might look like. And I don't know what to do with it. I'm overwhelmed don't know where to begin, don't know what to say, don't know where to start. To the other version, or there's another common story, I think, which is, like, I am also not okay. You know, I am healing from trauma. I am worried about money. I am, like, just trying to get through my day. Like, I don't, I can't prioritise like stop asking me to be an activist because you know I'm also hurting and I think and that's why you know it's it is com it's complicated uh and I think for the the folks who fall into the first bucket I think the important thing I would ask you to remember is that there is no there is no like right way to do this stuff. Mm. There is only trying and doing. So I think a lot of people are waiting for like a nice neat project or a nice neat opportunity to come with a bow on it. <laughs> and it's like, that's not how it works. You know, like your work might be reading and journaling and doing lots of work on your own to, to unravel your your own relationship with privilege, how that showed up over your childhood. Um, your work might be figuring out how to have a conversation with your uncle who's always racist at the Christmas dinner table and the rest of your family think that's fine and you know it's not fine. And that might be something you work out for three years. Like, there's no... You know, there's no tick box, like, do these things. Um, And I think the fear of, what if I get it wrong? What if I'm contradicting myself? Again, two things. That's what people want you to think. When you think all those things, you stay silent. And two, you might get it wrong. In fact, you probably will. I know I will. We're all just, we're all human beings. We are fallible creatures, the important thing is how you respond to the mistake you make and how you respond to getting it wrong because your fear around what, you know, the what ifs, like that is, like if that's your biggest fear, if that's your biggest problem, and you're really fucking lucky mm. because you're not having to worry about if my boss sees I've got a bump, I'm going to get fired. I live in a neighbourhood where if my black teenage son goes out a run, the police are going to pull them over. You know, like, these are just things that are not part of mine or yours daily life. Mm. It's not part of our lived experience. Um, and, yes, yeah, so I think those are the things. And then for the other 
stuff I think you know the idea of like oh somebody else has it worse than you therefore your pain or trauma or difficulty is invalid is like a really harmful narrative and it's one that you know I definitely don't have this cracked because I hear myself thinking well you know who are you to complain because you've got this 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 um so knowing that that you know there's no scale there's nobody sitting with a clipboard saying like well you know you're a nine out of ten and you're a ten out of ten so um it's recognizing that none of this invalidates your pain and as Sophie Walker talks about this in her book five rules for rebellion which I would really recommend and she painted this picture of a ferris wheel and the idea that some days and at some time in your sometimes in your life you will have energy you might have money you might have time you might have skills and talents and on those days it's your job to put them to work it's your job to put them to work for the women who don't have that stuff however there will be other days where you can't get out of bed where you're grieving, busy, ill, whatever that might be, that means that you can't show up that way. And that is absolutely fine because the Ferris wheel keeps turning all the time. And when you're in that space, there's somebody else in the high energy space. Mm. And that's how it works and keeps sustaining itself. Because the other thing that I see is you know there's some incredible activists and this is something I really love about Instagram it's putting all these brilliant women in their stories like right in front of us and you can hear them talking about the the burnout the sacrifice the mental health problems all of this like really harmful stuff that's happened to them because they've not stopped because they've not taken some time to rest to recover and I'm trying to trying to teach myself more and more to see it in a much long, long, long-term view. And this is super hard for me because, as I said before, I'm like designer. I make stuff, get stuff done, like fast. This is like that's my where I'm happy to be. So this idea of like I'm going to do this stuff, it's going to happen throughout my whole life till I'm dead. And then it will happen for generations after me. That's that's like a very different vantage point. Mm. But for the things that we're talking about here around race, you know, race parity, gender parity, like that stuff ain't happening in our lifetime. And that's why it's like there's such a tension with the like okay, I've got 30 minutes between my meeting on Thursday. What can I do to be an activist? It's like, it's, you know. Yeah, it's tough. Yeah. It's tough. It's tough to allow yourself to take a break when there's so much work to do. But as you say, it's really important to acknowledge, isn't it? Because you can't fight the good fight all the time. Otherwise, you'll burn out and then you'll be useless to everyone. And it's important to look after number one so that you can... You can have the energy to and do it's, things you're talking about. Absolutely. And it's, you know, you touch on a really good point, which again is something that I'm just scratching the surface of learning about is the relationship between rest and capitalism. And there's a mm. fantastic Instagram account called the Nap Ministry that talks about rest, particularly from the perspective of black and brown people. And it's this, you know, I see it. I just see it and I just need to open my phone and read my WhatsApp messages. It's like there's a franticness, especially in women. It's like need to be perfect wife, perfect mum, also an entrepreneur, also a girl boss, also have a podcast, also do a clubhouse. Like it's just, it's like constant search, constant wheel of bet- bettering. It's like self-optimization, which just leaves you frazzled and exhausted and you know what frazzled and exhausted people don't take governments to power don't don't change policies don't build charities like because you're exhausted and frazzled and I think that's Pandora Sykes 
talked about this in a way that I found really helpful in her book, How Do We Know We're Doing It Right? We're so conditioned to be on this treadmill of self-optimization that we firstly forget to rest, so end up broken, and secondly forget that it's not about self. It has to be about the collective and all of us if it's going to actually change the things that we want to change. I'd love to talk a bit about business and activism. I think we've talked about this throughout the whole podcast, but if we just focus on this a little bit, Mm -hmm. sometimes it can be seen as potentially aggressive. I know it's been described as that when this notion of activism comes into conversation. And um, I feel there's a fear of bringing activism into a professional capacity because there is that misunderstanding about, I guess, how you can combine the two and really have the impact that you want to have. And I know personally running um, a community, sometimes there are things that I want to say, but I struggle to put into words because I wonder how to deliver it in a way that it's palatable. And maybe the answer is sometimes it just ain't palatable. But I wonder if, you know, how can we turn our rage and anger into action Mm -hmm. in a way where it resonates and in a way where we're listened to because you do this so well you do it so well and everything everything you say just you know it has impact but it's also almost said with love it's like a love letter to everyone like (laughs) listening and watching and I just wonder if if you had any answers to that one yeah I have lots of thoughts and feelings about this one and thank you for your kind words because you know, I definitely don't have it figured out and there's definitely stuff that I want to say more about that I don't. Um, but I th- I think... So I think the first bit of it's seen as aggressive or pushy, I'm just bored of this narrative. It's the same narrative of... If I start a business, people will think I'm a show-off. If I write a book, people will think I'm in love with myself. If I have a website, people are going to think X, Y, Z. Like, it's all just a narrative of you're too much, you're too loud, you're too quiet, you're too fat, you're too thin, you're too political, you're not political enough. Like, the truth is that you cannot get away from the reality that some people will choose not to like you. And some people will not like what you say. And I really empathise with and recognise that for many women, depending on the cultural group you grew up part of, that is a very, very scary thing to consider. It's a very scary idea to imagine being ignored, not being taken seriously, being called aggressive, being called pushy. You know, Lara, I guarantee the stories that you've heard me say that to you felt like a love letter with impact, there's 10 people somewhere who thought they were aggressive and pushy. Mm. And it's it's back to what we shared, talked about previously on the fear of being aggressive and pushy is like you know if that's the only thing that's stopping you then that's a another that's a privilege you're coming from a place of privilege because you're not scared you're going to lose your job you're not scared you're going to be physically attacked on the street you're not scared that some harm is going to come to you or the people you love you're scared that some people on instagram who don't know you are going to think you're a bit of a dick like okay that's okay and i'm saying this with like I also find this hard. It is hard because we are human and most of us, if we've grown up as women, we want people to like us, especially people like you and I who are putting our flag in the ground and saying, come and join, come and join my gang. Like you're building a space, you're building something really intentional with vision around it and purpose around it. And it feels scary to think, what if I say or do the wrong thing and it puts that in danger but again I think it's it's about how you respond and show up when if and when you say the wrong thing like there's so much power in learning 
there mm. for all the people in your community who are looking to you for show me how to do, show me what this looks like show me how to show up and talk about the thing that's keeping me up at night or the headline that's really relevant to my dad's disability that nobody can see or you know there's there's everybody has got causes and problems that they care very 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 deeply about um and most people kind of keep it locked away because of the fear of people are going to think I'm too much people are going to think I'm 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 too much and it's like yeah they will and you keep going because there's going to be 200 other people who learn from you who appreciate your message who are now smarter and educated or have a different vantage point on a thing than they were that, that they wouldn't have had access to that if you hadn't shared what you shared so you know I think it's a very timely question because obviously we had the whole um clusterfuck that's the word I will use around base camp and their recent announcement to ban political conversation at work and I think you know that was such a a stellar example of first of all privilege in action and secondly that if you're if you're coming from a place of I'm going to decide what I talk about, what I don't talk about, what my team gets to talk about, what my team doesn't get to talk about, like that is an intense luxury that black and brown people, disabled people, LGBTQ plus people, they don't get to choose because it's because it's them. It's their life. It's who they are. So we're, you know, and I... I think that's what helps me that's what helps me to show up and 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 ship it if you like like this whether it's a story or a conversation and I by no means I'm sure I'm getting tons wrong I'm sure I'll continue to get tons wrong but my kind of perspective on it is I know that I'm trying and I'm not trying so hard that it's you know making me lose sleep at night or making me ill but I'm trying and you know I I really do believe that we are going to see a shift in people are going to start whether it be spending money choosing to work for you know they are going to seek out leaders who are willing to, to to make the sacrifices that come with holding space for these difficult, uncomfortable conversations because they're reality. Mm. You want to put your head in the sand and pretend they're not there. That's that's that is your right. You can do that, but it will it will not serve you, and it definitely doesn't serve the rest of us. Yeah, and. Um... I think now more than ever with everything that's happened over the last year, I guess, has just magnified so many issues that were already there. But as you say, like now more than ever, people are craving those spaces. People want to talk about it and they want to feel safe in an environment where they can talk about it. And I think we're also open to learning from others who have different opinions to us, like now more than ever, was kind of welcoming those healthy debates and conversations because that's the only way we're going to learn yeah so I think what you're doing with Upfront is just incredible and I I know obviously seeing the impact that you have you know every day when you wake up you're like right this is what I'm doing and I'm so sure about it you know but on the other hand I guess you have challenges right what are the challenges that you face um or what challenges do you personally come up against maybe in your whether it's your social life or your work life, um, that make this harder for any for anyone who can relate or find comfort in any of those challenges. Gosh, I mean, I love the version of me that you have in your head. <laughs> that is like waking up, like this is my mission. This is what I'm doing. Like honestly, I cannot tell you 
this is new. Like it's taken me, what's the maths, 12 years to get here. And I'm in week three of feeling really fucking damn sure. Like I have not felt, like there's always been a, I mean, I feel like it's a whole other conversation. There's always been, like whether it's fear, doubt, there's always been aspects of it that aspects of it that I felt very sure and there's lots of beliefs that I or values that I feel very strongly about and have always felt sure of. But the mission of my mission is to help women see and use their power and I am going to do that through this vehicle that I have created called Bonds. I set up a, a business 15 months ago with a co-founder here in Sweden. You know, we talked about that a bit. Um, and I've worked on that for the last 15 months and walked away a few weeks ago and now, you know, with the, with the focus on upfront, like that was really, really hard. Sleepless nights, tears, frantic phone calls to MD that would listen. <laughs> Somebody please tell me what to do. Like just feeling, um, feeling uncertain, unsure. So the challenges, I mean, they're so... There are many, I think, I for me, I definitely feel ageism, sexism on a daily basis. Um, you know, I built my first business when I was 23 and ageism, you know, I can now see on reflection, that was a huge contribution to lots of experiences that I had and that kind of first phase of my entrepreneurial journey you know now I think it's old ways of thinking and it's the kind of old way of thinking of being of of power you know a lot of that shows up in in context around money permission uh and it means that it's hard like it's really hard and you know Instagram one of the gorgeous things about Instagram and it's clever but evil algorithm is that you know it's easy for me to hop in there and I can feel the warmth of the 300 500 women you you know you are one of them like I am with you and I think you're ace and I'm cheerleading you as I go but I come out of that bubble and in my inbox and in my meetings and in my day-to-day, -day, you know, I'm meeting, and they are usually men who just don't get it. They just don't get it. It doesn't matter. <laughs> I'm not important enough. Um, and that's, I don't think that will ever go away. Like, also for me, that is a sign that I'm doing the right thing. Like, the people who just don't get it, I've definitely learned like that happens way less to me now because I just don't give them time it's like I'm going to go talk to the people who get it whereas five years ago I was you know 10 coffees later putting up with this man chatting shite about his second home in Spain and like not actually listening to me it's like not caring it's like I'm not going to have these conversations I'm going to go and focus on the people who are listening so I think that's hard. Another thing that's hard for me is, you know, I find this work lonely at times. And I think, you know, COVID has reinforced that. You know, a lot of the kind of human connection and friendships that I would get out of being at events, hosting events, being in physical spaces with other humans, like that's all gone. And, you know, the personality I have, that's hard. That's hard for me. So, yeah, I think those are my two biggest challenges. And I definitely don't always or haven't always felt sure. It's mm. taken a really long time. Yeah, and I'm sure that's really comforting to many people because I was thinking about this earlier today and about... Um, how how important it is you don't necessarily need to have a roadmap or know where you're going but you need to know what you're passionate about you have to be passionate about what you're doing especially when you're going against the grain entering entrepreneurship trying to build something from scratch doing something that is against the norm I feel like 
passion is kind of what carries you through all that shit that you have to get through to get to where you Mm. are now, where you've just, you know, said it's taken years of trial and error, Mm. conversations, businesses, and that passion's carried you through to the point where now I guess you've been able to go all in and that's, and that's incredible. Mm -hmm. So for our listeners that may have an idea may feel like they've you know got something they're really passionate about but they're lacking confidence what advice would you give to them well the first thing is to know that confidence comes with action so you know I have a lot of conversations with women who are kind of in the space you describe where that I often there's so many ideas a thousand ideas our opinions thoughts and but there's no action and they get stuck in this space of I don't know what the next step is and they they stay there for so long that nothing ends up it ends up that nothing happens so the thing that I would ask you to think about is like what is the tiniest scrappiest step you can take tomorrow You don't need a website, you do not need fancy equipment, you don't need a strategy, you don't need a logo, you don't need a brand identity, you do not need a website or any of these things. You just need to keep putting one foot in front of the other when it's at this early stage of something is evolving and you're figuring out what it is. Now you might do that through conversation, you might do it through writing, you might do it through joining a community like Found and Flourish or joining the Bond. You know, depends where you're at in the journey, what you need to get. But there's tons of brilliant spaces and programs that are in the world that, depending on where you're at in the journey, can help you. So, of course, if you know that confidence is the blocker, come and join the Bond. We would love to have you. But if that if that doesn't feel like the right thing, then I always I always say write I really believe that writing is such an incredible tool it's like if you want to find out what you think about something Mm. write it down if you want to become known for something write about it if you want to help yourself formulate expand plans ideas visions write and again then we have the like, oh, but I'm not a writer, and what would anybody, what would somebody say if I wrote something down? It's like all the same rules apply to what this other stuff we've just talked about. Like again, that is a bullshit story that somebody somewhere's decided. So when you do X Y Z, you're a writer, and if you don't do ABC, you're not a writer. Like if you ever write words on paper, you're a writer, and you know there's every single day. There are, you know, I meet incredible, ordinary, yet extraordinary women, just like me and you, who are sitting on fucking gold mines, whether that's poetry, business ideas, advice, lived experiences that would help others, like absolute sheer gold. And nobody ever gets to hear about them or see them because there's so much fear around putting it into the world. And I just think, what a waste. Mm. You know, all of us have got a very particular lived experience, worldview, experiences we've had in our life that mean that we think about things in a certain way. And we need to hear all those different ways. Like, look at the state of the world, turn the news on. This is because the majority of leaders all think the same way. And they all look the same. And they all went to the same school. Like, that's why these things aren't getting solved. Because the people trying to solve them can only see, like, one tiny slice of the picture. So, write baby, and to take baby, baby, baby steps be my two pieces of advice Lauren it's been such a pleasure talking to you thank you so much for sparing your time and being so open about your experiences and your wonderful mission um where can people find you follow you support your amazing work and how can they get involved with the next bond yes of course and thank you so much for having me I feel 
Yeah, I think I've got an adrenaline high after after this conversation. It's been great. So thank you for holding the space for us. And for your listeners, yeah, come be my friends on the internet. My name uh, across all social platforms is my first name and my last name, Lauren Curry. So you can follow me on Instagram. I also publish two newsletters, which are free, so you can sign up for those. And of course, Upfront is Upfront Global on Instagram. Our website is weareupfront.com. And that's the where to go to sign up for early news on the fifth bond. So our next six-week online course will start on the 8th of November. Tickets go on sale on the 27th of October. We are welcoming women from all over the world. The last bond had 322 women from 21 different countries. Wow, amazing. So it's time zone friendly and we don't put any emphasis on professional identity. So you are welcome if you're a student, a chief exec, a team lead. Uh, The course is free if you're on maternity leave or on no income. We have discounts for charities and students. And of course, we're working with a whole bunch of businesses who are putting cohorts of their teams through the program. So if you are an employer or you think your employer would be interested in inviting teams and departments in your organization to be part of the bond, I'd love to have that conversation with you too. And really, as you can probably tell, I just love to chat about this stuff. I'm posting insights, ideas uh strong opinions on online most days so we can continue the conversation on there thanks lauren thank you thank you thank you you for listening to the bossing it podcast so that we can be discovered by more people please do spare two minutes to leave us a rating and review and of course subscribe on your favorite podcast platform so you are notified when the next episode is up you can find us online at Found Flourish. Please tweet us, DM us, send us a message and get in touch if you'd like to nominate a guest or if you have any questions about any of the topics we've discussed during this series so far. Thank you again for listening and see you soon.